Hello and welcome to the Tifa Football Podcast. Today I'm just here to introduce Seb Stafford Bloor, who interviewed Jonathan Wilson about his new book, The Barcelona Legacy. Many of you will know Jonathan Wilson already. For those of you who don't, he's perhaps best known for his tactics writing. He's written five books, perhaps the most well-read being Inverting the Pyramid, in which he charts the history of football tactics. He frequently writes for The Guardian and appears on Guardian Football Weekly, and he's also the editor of The Blizzard, a quarterly journal of football writing. Jonathan released The Barcelona Legacy about a month ago, in August of 2018. The book is in part about tactics, about the theories that underpin the modern game and were forged by Cruyff and his successors, but also about Pep Guardiola and Jose Mourinho and their relationship, how it began at Barcelona and where it is now. That's mainly what Seb talks to Jonathan about today, but they get to a few other topics towards the end of the podcast as well. It's a really fascinating listen uh, and I'm delighted that we're able to put it out. Many of you will know that uh, tactics is something that we really enjoy writing about and making videos about here at TIFO, so it's a, it's a great pleasure to be able to have Jonathan Wilson on the platform in one form or another. Anyway, that's enough of an introduction for now. I will leave you in the very capable hands of Seb, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you for downloading. Welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Uh, delighted today to be, be able to welcome Jonathan Wilson. Uh, we're talking about the Barcelona legacy, his new book, uh, as well as some of his previous works and the, the processes which have gone into them. Jonathan, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm very, very well. Um, let's start with the Barcelona legacy. I, um, I, w- I was surprised to, to hear you were writing about this topic because it, it feels today as if um, even the internet doesn't quite have the capacity to, uh, to house more Mourinho Guardiola. <laughs> content what was the um what, what what drove you towards it i think there's a, there's a couple of things um i mean the, the first is um that I, I think there's there's sort of been two instances in the history of football when you've had a club uh, and at that club you've had an incredible collection of people who go on to be incredibly influential in in how football develops in a in a couple of decades afterwards um, and I, I think it may become more common given we now have a you know, very small number of, of big clubs. And so you know, I think this, this might be a, a, sign, you know, a sign of the future. But you know, in, in the you know, 150-odd years of football history, it's only ever really happened twice. So I think the first time was MTK in Budapest in the 1920s uh, when they had a very clearly defined style of play. Um, and my next book is about that. Um, and the the, the the reason that became they became so influential by that the MTK style sort of spread was because of the economic and political turmoil in in Budapest and in Hungary in the twenties and which obviously then gets worse in the thirties with rising anti-Semitism um, and a lot of the, the the key people at that club for for one reason or another end up leaving and they you know they go to initially to Austria and then to Germany and then to Italy and then to France and then to Sweden and then ultimately to South America, and they have a huge impact on the game. And, and so, I mean, I think in a sense, Inverting the Pyramid was a, a, a I mean, obviously it's, it's a book about football, and a book about football tactics, but it's a book about how ideas spread. And I think MT Carr really, when, when, you, when you look at it, is, is a nexus of that. Then the only other example, I think, is Barcelona in the late 90s, where you have Johan Cruyff who sort of lays down his, his philosophy, the very brief one season of, of Bobby Robson, and then Lou Van Hall takes over, 
and his two assistants are Ronald Koeman, who okay hasn't had stellar career as, as some of the others, but you know he is the current coach of the Netherlands, which in terms of spreading that Cruyffian philosophy is clearly you know, quite a key role. Um, his second assistant was Jose Mourinho, and his midfield was Luis Enrique and Pep Guardiola. So between them, enormous success, but not just success in terms of uh, winning silverware, but but success in terms of shaping how we think about the game and how the, how the game is played. So it's partly that. And then, of course, it's just an amazing story. Yeah, there's something, um, you know, it, it seems cliche to say, but there's something almost Shakespearean about it, or, you know, it has elements of Greek tragedy about it, that you have the, these two figures, Guardiola and Mourinho, who clearly are the, the two key figures in the book, um, who are competing to get Barcelona a job in, in 2008. They've, they've worked together back in the 90s. And you have Mourinho, who's the, the outsider, who doesn't really ever seem quite to think he was accepted by the Barcelona establishment. And certainly the media around Barcelona, the, the entorno, as, as they call it, the, all the noise that goes on around that club, the politicking, he was always regarded as he's the translator, which you know had been his job when he'd arrived at Bobby Robson, mm-hmm. but they quickly became much more significant than, than that. Guardiola is is the insider. You know, he's, he's come through the academy. He's absolutely steeped in in that Cruyffian philosophy. Cruyff's given him his debut. He's he's the the embodiment of Cruyff on the pitch. And so in 2008, the two go head to head. So this is sort of the future of the you know the soul of Barcelona, if you like. And they go for Guardiola and Mourinho. To use Mark Ingler, the, the director, one of the directors who made the decision, to use his phrase, he was then poisoned against the club. And so they then have this incredibly bitter and toxic rivalry. And those four years of Guardiola at Barcelona with the last two seasons with Mourinho there, you know, from my point of view as a football journalist, I've been doing the job for 19 years now, that's been the most fascinating period, this incredible sort of story of these great archetypes being played out. Um, and, you know, the huge drama of Inter winning the semi-final against Barcelona in 2010, and then you know, Guardiola coming back the following year and, and wiping the floor with Mourinho, but those four games they had in the two and a half weeks towards the end of the season, the, the league game which was drawn, the Copa del Rey final, which Mourinho won, and the, the, the most important game the Champions League semi-finals, where Barcelona and Guardiola come out on top. But Guardiola then subsequently admits that winning that destroyed him. And the following year, he didn't have the energy to compete. And Mourinho does win the title and does topple the, you know, the, the, the great sort of prince of this philosophy. So that, that story just has so many... Um, classical themes there with this fascinating story of the Ajax Barcelona philosophy yeah. as a sort of backdrop to it. So, so that's, that's why I was drawn to it. I suppose, I mean, obviously within this story, the, 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 the kind of the, uh, the high priest is Jan Cruyff. Do you think, um, I mean, it, without giving it a time scale, do you think in time under different circumstances and without the sort of the, the benefit of a, uh, an encasing organization like a Barcelona, do you think these two will breed um, something similar in a further generation? I think that's very probable of Guardiola. I'm not so sure about Mourinho, but it's, it's possible. Um, I mean, you, you, what you certainly have um, is coaches who have had an enormous influence on, on players who played for him. So something like Valery Lobnowski, yep. you know, clearly players who played for him have taken on his ideas. But I don't think it's quite as easy to, to discern a a Lobanovsky in style. And, and that's one of the issues I think Dinamikiev have had, that they keep on asking themselves, well, what, what would Valerie do? And, and you're know, trying to second-guess 
you know, man who died what, 16 years ago, mm-hmm. I don't think it's ever a great idea. Um, whereas Guardiola had the, um, uh, the the self-confidence, the intelligence um, to to evolve Fife style. Um, and I suspect the way he coaches will influence players he play for him. And you, you've got to have the right player. You've got to have a player who has that, that tactical brain, that self-confidence. But I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if in, say, 20 years we're talking about, um, I don't know, Kevin De Bruyne, for instance, uh, as um, yeah, as the, the next heir in that line, the, you know, the person who's taken that idea on. Uh, maybe others at City. Um, I think certainly people who, who, who played from at, at Barcelona, you know, Xavi, for instance, I think yeah. it's entirely possible he, he might take that on. You sort of assume it'll be one of those sort of midfielders. Um, you're one of those people who sort of well, uh, is sort of the hub of the game. And then maybe that's unfair. Maybe it'll end up being a centre-back or you know, a winger or whatever. But, I mean, I, I think that's that's plausible. And I think it's also something in the way that Guardiola coaches. And I think you certainly see this with, with Bielsa. That Bielsa encourages his players to think like coaches. You know, one, one of, I don't know if he still does it, but certainly one of the things he did back at Newell's in the early nineties was he he gave homework to players. So two players every week would come in with their analysis of the opposition because he wanted them to think, you know, not just about their own game, but about you know, the, the game as a whole. And so that's one of the reasons why Bielsa is so influential that people like um, you know, Pochettino being being the obvious example, but but uh, Lop as well. Um, you know, they've they were inspired by that to to become coaches themselves. I suppose uh, one of the reasons, presumably, you've kind of you, you don't see Jose Mourinho extending that kind of influence is, is partly because there seems to be this this not a, not a clear before and after uh, in his career, but certainly a first act and a second act uh, between the Mourinho uh, that existed at Porto and at Chelsea the first time around. And to a certain extent, and into Milan, and the one that we see in front of us today, who is uh, actually in the book, you 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 compare him to uh, to to Milton Satan, um, which I think is is kind of perfect. It's kind of this 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 fallen angel uh, type character. Where where did that division? Where did where did that separation occur between old and new with him? Yeah, they... I, I, there's there's two phases of it actually. So I think it's uh, I think you're right. I think it's it's essentially two acts. But I think that the transition is sort of a, an on track. So you, you know you have 2008 is clearly a, a very very important moment when he doesn't get the Barcelona job, and so that that's that, you know that's the moment when it, it confirms to him that he's been rejected by Barcelona, and he sort of becomes then the anti-Barcelona. Well, you know at Porto you could see. Elements of the Barcelona style. You could see where he'd had his footballing education. That you know, they pressed high up the pitch, not in every game, and certainly mm. in, in a lot of the Champions League games they didn't. But in the league games, they they, they pressed high up the pitch. They they played a sort of a variant of the Barcelona style. Yeah, you know, once he gets to Chelsea, you know, that starts to fade. But it's really 2008 when he he becomes just the opposite of Guardiola. So it's it's almost like he said, okay, Barcelona want to play with a high line. I'll play with a low block. They want to play with the ball. I'll play without the ball. And I think that's why his victory with Inter in in the um, I mean the one 0 defeat, but the three two aggregate yeah. victory, second leg of that semi final in, in 2010. I think that's why that's so key that he won that game with 19 percent possession. He just sort of said, "Well, you don't need the ball." And I think that's actually had a huge influence in, in, you know, in a slightly different way to the way Guardiola's influenced the way tactics have gone. I think from that moment, it became acceptable. 
for big clubs to play without the ball. And you know, I remember talking to Michael Carrick about the 2009 final, Manchester United were you know, played off a park by Barcelona. And you know, he said well, you know, one of the things they had to get used to, or one of the things they were unable to get used to, uh, was not having the ball. They just weren't used to not having the ball. It felt almost shameful not to have it. So there might be a game where they had you know, 45% possession or even 40% possession, but they never had 30 and so they, they lost discipline and lost shape because they kept chasing the ball. Um, and I think that's a really interesting idea. And I think that has changed. And I think you, know, you see in the Premier League now that 30% possession is, is quite common. And I, I think I'm right in saying that in the first three years, optical stats, which would have been, I think, 03, 04, 04, 05, 05, 06. It might be one year out either way. There are only three instances in those three seasons. This The season just gone, the season just finished, um, 2017-18. Uh, I think I'm right in saying there was over 80. So that, that's something that's become... Like 80 normal. individual instances within the season. Yeah, really. yeah as opposed to three in three years, 80 in one year. So that's a, that's a massive change over sort of a 15-year period. And I think you can see that semi-final as being the sort of watershed there. But then the, you know, the, 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 second, the second part of tipping old Mourinho into new Mourinho, I think is what happened at Real Madrid. And I think he was badly burned by that. Mm. That he'd never really experienced players agitating against him he never really kind of had a dressing room that, that rejected him he might have had one or two players who didn't like him but he could control them he could get rid of them whereas you get you know every indication is that Real Madrid there was a pretty large core who did not like him and were, were by the end actively agitating against him and from what we hear at Manchester United it wouldn't surprise me if, if a similar thing is going on now or if, if it uh, if it turns out in six months or a year's time that that has been going on, um, that there's he definitely does less work on the training field than he used to, but you sort of sense that connection he used to have with players yeah. isn't there anymore, and that used to be a huge thing. I mean, you know, the the, the night he left Chelsea, um, you know, the stories about people like Michael Ballack being in tears because mm. they, you know, they they couldn't bear the thought of being without Mourinho. That there was a very very strong bond. Uh, you talk to the players who played him at Porto, and it, it's like they're talking about this sort of, uh, you know, cult leader that that um, they're unable to conceive him doing anything wrong. They just would follow whatever Mourinho told them to do, and that that power, I think, is for whatever reason has, has waned. Um, during the sort of the going back to that that Madrid phase of his career, I mean, one of the one of the the, the, the threads which binds these two is that. Um, obviously, there's a lot of literature about them. And a lot of articles are written about them. Uh, there's a lot of journalistic attention. Um, what's one of the difficulties in, in sort of in sifting through the wreckage at Madrid, trying to separate uh, the fact from without throwing anyone under the bus the 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 embellishments that accompany that period? Because it seems that sort of um, one of the things I liked about the book was it was dispassionate. It was a it was straight down the middle. There was no. There was no waiting in either direction, whereas otherwise I've read where there's clearly a kind of, uh, there's almost a venom uh, behind the accounts of his his time at Madrid. Is that, when, when you researched that period, was that a, a difficulty? Uh, it was something I was aware of, certainly. And I, I think You do touch on it in the book, uh, gently. Um, it just, it, it's such a, it's, it's just such a strange thing. It's sort of, it's almost kind of, I, it's not a new feature of journalism, of course, but it, it's a, it, it's something very specific to these two. Um, yeah, I, I, mean, I, th- I think one of the advantages in, in the, the the fact this book covers 20 years of history is it's possible to step back and take an overview. 
And you know the people who are very easy to talk to as the Porto players, they, they can't stop talking about Mourinho. Mm. So you know, from, from that point of view, it's um, you know, that gives you um, an insight. Whereas I think if it had been a book specifically about his time at Real Madrid or about Guardiola's time at Barcelona, inevitably the the people you talk to, um, people who you know, have played under him fairly recently, and you know emotions clearly still run pretty strong. Um, your array of contacts will end up dictating the tone of the book. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just something you, you as a reader have to be aware of. Yeah. Whereas you know, there is a little bit more distance here, partly because I'm not based in Spain, which Helps. gives you that, that natural <laughs> distance. Um, I, and, you know, I guess it must be like trying to write a book on something to do with Rangers and Celtic, that whatever you say will be assumed that you have some kind of agenda. Um, and equally with Barcelona and Real Madrid, whatever you say will be assumed you're writing it because you, you for some reason, favour that side or you know a particular player. Well, you know, hopefully I'm distant enough from it that, that I've sort of avoided that. And, then, and you know, the, the, the real sort of... Um, the meat of the book is actually a little bit earlier than that. Yeah. Um, the, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I think I spoke to nine or ten Porto players um, I mean, basically, the Portuguese and the Dutch are fantastic to write books about because they can't stop talking, and they're all incredibly sort of forthright. <laughs> so, yeah, but, but I think yeah, but, but definitely, Ajax is, is great to write about, and Porto is great to write about, just because people love talking about them. Uh, talking of forthright Dutchmen, um, can I ask about the experience of interviewing Louis van Gaal? Because it, it just it, it looks terrifying. Yeah, I don't intend to do that again. <laughs> It was the morning of the League Cup final last season when, when City beat Arsenal. And we met at a, at a hotel in, in West London because he was um, doing commentary on the game, co-commentary on the game. And I, you know, I'd, I'd sort of um, uh, emailed him several months earlier. Um, and he hadn't replied. He sort of, you know, footballers and football people often don't reply. And then suddenly, I don't know, a week or two before the, the final, he, he emails me. And, you know, completely out of the blue. And so says, you know, I've researched you. I think you're okay. Let me. <laughs> I think you're okay. What's <laughs> mean? And he's actually been back to everything I've ever written about him. God knows what I've said. I could have said any old nonsense. Um, and then the, the actual interview itself. He, you know, he, it's very obvious he used to be a teacher, you know, a school teacher, because he he constantly asks you questions. So, you know, for instance, you, you know, I remember saying to him. Um, you know, what was the thinking in going to back three before the 2014 World Cup with the, with the Dutch national team? And he goes, just turned around and goes, well, who was my defence? <laughs> and he'd say, oh, God, like if I was sitting kind of calmly at home, I'd probably get the five in, you know, if you gave me five minutes. But sitting there in this hot hotel room while Louis van Gaal staring at me, <laughs> it's almost impossible. So he's going, um, um, Daryl Janmat? Effort to dry? I, I don't know. Oh, lesser careers would have just ended there. I think you just you just you run screaming from the room. <laughs> um, can I ask a, a really broad question? I I I um, I think a, a lot of different people have a lot of different favourite Jonathan Wilson books. What what has been? I I don't want to use a, a expression as try as most enjoyable. What what which one have you found most gratifying to write? That's one that you might need five minutes for. No, they, they, it's a bit like asking somebody to choose between their kids. You know, it's really something you should never do. Well, I've got friends who would happily do that. I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I mean, you know, inverting the pyramids, um, develop a momentum, um, yeah, and and sort of, uh, I, I realised that I'd sort of fallen into place, um, I don't know, two thirds, three quarters of the way through it, and I then had this terror that I might, you know, mess it up, um, and then you know, the sales of that have been been extraordinary, and they keep on being extraordinary, and that's that's been. You're very useful financially, um, and, you know, and that's helped sort of finance some of the other stuff. Uh, the Argentina book um, was a book I'm really glad I wrote. I mean, that yeah. was a real effort. It took three and a half years of writing. So that took more time than anything else. When, uh, when you say three and a half years, is that presumably that's three and a half years balanced with match reporting, normal freelancing, and the kind of you know uh, sort of the uh, round trip of podcasts and normal. Is that, is that quite hard to balance? Uh, and running the blizzard, yeah. And running the blizzard, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, it was, and to be honest, that was I don't know, two years later, something. It was, but that was a book I, you know, I really wanted to write because I'd, I'd spent a lot of time in Argentina. Um, you know, I sort of lived there on and off for three years, uh, and developed a you know, deep affection for, for Buenos Aires, particularly, but the, you know, the country as a whole and the country's football. And, and you know, if you look at um, uh, you know, look across the scope of, sort of football literature over the last sort of, 20 years or so, you know, there's been a really good book about Brazil, there's been a really good book about the Netherlands, there's been a really good book about Italy, there's been a really good book about Germany. And for whatever reason, nobody touched Argentina. That was the, sort of the, the last it, big it, country that hadn't been tackled. Um, so I was uh, persistently sort of paranoid that somebody would get there first. Uh, and thankfully they didn't. Um, but I mean, that book, just became huge. I just realised there was so much there. I mean, the original manuscript was, I think, over a quarter of a million words, and we we cut it back to I think 170 odd, and then I put in another 10,000 because they they'd taken out all the stuff about Argentinian cinema, which I and <laughs> else, I'd spent hours on YouTube watching Argentinian films. I mean, you can't take that out. That's but I think it's quite similar. I think the cinema and football go in parallel in the 1930s. But, but I mean, anyway, so that was. Um, uh, I mean, that's sold quite slowly, but it, it seems pretty steady. The sales keep going, so, which I think suggests your sort of healthy word of mouth sales. And you know, the, the people who've read it have, have liked it, and I th- I, I'm, so I'm pleased about that. I think I think that sort of um, in the end, it did what I wanted it to do. Uh, the Clough book was written. Um, I mean, Clough was my, my dad's favourite player, and, and I got the um, got the, the contract to do that sort of about two three months before he died so, yeah. so that was quite a personal book um, I, don't, I mean the, the Hungry book I'm doing now is is fascinating in, in, in many ways because it, it, it's very different that um, yeah, I, I, because it's you know, the other ten the first ten books I've done people essentially know the story you know, people know that Argentina won the World Cup in 1978 and 1986 they know that Brian Clough won the European Cup with, with Nottingham Forest and then had this long decline in alcoholism and whatever Whereas the the hungry book, um, there's probably about a dozen coaches who are sort of the the key figures in that, and some of them survive the war and some of them don't, and a lot of them there's sort of years of their lives that that um, just nobody knows what happened. So so going through archives in Hungary, tracing down you know a sentence or a paragraph in a newspaper and trying to piece that together uh, is, is itself you know, it's a it's a different skill. It's a, it's, it's it's hugely gratifying. When I mean, this guy in that Emma Herschel, who's quite a big figure in the Argentina book, who essentially nothing was known of, of his first 30 years of his life until he turns up in, in Brazil, first 29 years of his life, when he turns up in Sao Paulo in, in 929. And then, of course, we know pretty much exactly what happened because he was living in the public eye. 
Um, and so, so working out what happened that first 29 years has, has been incredibly exciting. And, you know, you, you, you realize, um, I, was, I was in Budapest, um, it was supposed to be in last month, and a, a friend over there who's been helping out with some research had finally managed to find, this is like seven years of, of hunting for this, we found proof that he'd been married before the wife that we knew he had. And I'd suspected that for a long time, but we found absolute proof of it. We found his marriage certificate. Oh, wow. And then, so that was exciting. But then even more exciting was, uh, saw the wife's name, and I realized that I had a passenger manifest from um, the from 1932, I think it might be 1933, of a ship going from Budapest to... Oh, See one of a day and then Buenos Aires, and she's on it. She's not oh, only on it; she's the top name. And I hadn't realised who she was because it was a maiden name that's used on the passenger manifest. And so then, you suddenly, in the space of, of an hour, I've gone from not really being certain this guy was was married twice to finding out his first wife actually went to Argentina, and that's an incredibly exciting feeling. It's a sentence in the book, but no, but that, a huge piece in the life. Uh, it's a. Uh... She went out with with her son, who was at the time seven. Yeah. She then realized hang on, that means when he emigrated to South America, his son was three. So why on earth did he go? What was he doing to leave and leave a three-year-old son behind? And his brother was also on that ship. So what was he doing? And then he realized, as we now got the son's name, you can go through uh, death certificates. And we find the son died in 1940, age 14. So immediately you think, you know, because they're, they're Jewish, you think, okay, 1940, yep. was it the Holocaust? Yeah. But the Holocaust didn't come to Budapest in 1944. Uh, and it, I'm not certain, but now it appears he, he died of TB. So you then think, oh, there's this poor woman who's, for whatever reason, has left her husband in Argentina, her son's died, and she's Jewish in Budapest, that's under you know, a quasi-fascist government and is about to have a German invasion. And then there's a um, there's a register of Jews who survived the one Budapest from 1946, and her name's on that. So we know she survived, but we there's no there's no evidence of any sort of formal divorce. We don't know what happened between 1932 and 1940 that she went home. I mean, my assumption is that she just didn't like Argentina, and you know you, you sort of imagine a conversation where she said to him, "Rehearsal, the coach we're talking about." And Herschel had not been a, a football person at all in Hungary, but somehow he blagged, his, blagged himself a job as a coach in, in Argentina and had become very, very good at it to the point that um, he, he becomes River Plate coach and wins the double with them in 1936. And so you, you imagine at some point in the 30s, there's a conversation where she says, look, I want to go home. I can't, I can't stand it in Argentina where you know, I don't speak the language. You know, none of my family, none of my friends. And he says, well, yeah, but if I go back home, I'm a guy who sells salami. Here, I'm the best coach in the world. So you can see, yeah, you, you, I'm not saying that is what happened. That's, that seems a, a plausible explanation as to what happened. But then she's left in this awful situation of losing her husband, losing her son, and, and um, surviving the, you know, living in the ghetto for however many months in 44 and 45. So, yeah, that, that research has been absolutely fascinating. And I, I, I'm not saying it's it's better but it's just different so it's kind of you know it's quite fun to do something new and it's also just a different style of writing because people don't know the yeah. outcome so when people do die in the holocaust or, or you know die early for whatever reason that's packs an emotional punch that 
you know, the other books could never have because it, people know know the outcome. Okay, so when I I, I think we spoke about this the other day, uh, that's coming out this time next year. Hopefully, yeah, it's yeah. going to be done by the end of the year. I've, I'm a, I've written yeah about sixty percent of it. There's still a bit more research to be done, but uh, hopefully, you know, fingers crossed that 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 will that will be written by the end of the year. So it should come out next August. Brilliant. Okay. Well, in the in the meantime, I, I know Mourinho and Guardiola is a tired type of people, but really, really do read this. It's um, it's fascinating. The detail. Um, I, how you managed to put as much detail in, the, in as you did and and keep it readable, I, I don't know. But it worked out pretty well. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much. We've got a um, an early Champions League game tonight, so I'll let you get off. But thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's very enjoyable.